Lord, we invite you and we ask right now that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts and to our minds. God, I thank you that you are love. But love is dangerous. And we don't realize how dangerous it is because love is how the enemy uses our desires, our passions to lead us in directions and paths we should not go. Lord, we live in a culture that says indulge everything, do everything, taste, touch, feel everything. And we are left hollow and empty. We are left realizing that what we have done, what we have seen, what we have, what we have experienced can never be taken back. And Lord, I know that our souls can become stained because of this. Lord, I pray right now as we look at your love and look at what your love is for us and how it redeems us, transforms us, and changes us, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, place that deep in the very recesses of our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome to UCC. If you're visiting with us, we want to say welcome to you. Thanks so much for joining us. And as you can tell, we as a church, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We actually love uh, the family idea of what we do. And so my name is uh, Raja. I'm one of the pastors here. And before I begin my teaching this morning, I want to first say a huge ha- uh, thank you to Pastor Jeremy for the last three weeks of teaching and giving me a, a break in teaching. Give him a hand because he did a really great job. And, and what I'm really hoping for is that those of you who are interested in our downtown community church, which launches November 6th, um, that you know that you in, you're in uh, great hands with Jeremy and Melissa, uh, his lovely wife, and what they're going to do there. Okay, preamble over. Let's jump in. I've missed you guys. I, uh, I was away for a bit. I, was, uh, I spoke at a youth camp. I don't know why people still ask me to do these things, but uh, I was at a youth camp speaking for a, uh, a week, and uh, from Sunday to Sunday, I spoke 13 times in one week, and even for me, that's a lot, so, uh, but I really enjoyed it, uh, and they were grateful to have me, and uh, for some reason, they've invited me back, and so I have to clear that with my wife, who's my booking agent. So we are going to jump into a series that I've been thinking about for a little bit. And here's what I want you to know about this series, though. I actually intended to do this in February. So in the summertime, what I tend to do is I take a look at what I, I, I pray, and I kind of say, okay, Lord, what is it you want to speak to us this year? And this one was placed in my heart, but I had put it in February, because in, in February, everyone talks about love. But the Lord said to me, no, 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 start in September. And I'm like, okay. So, so I, here's what I believe. I believe that we are in a culture that loves love. We sing about it, we watch movies about it, we, listen to, we, 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 we think about love a lot, but I don't know if we think about how dangerous love is and, and how it can actually be used against us. So I've entitled the series, uh, Danger, Love Ahead, and just like uh, the driver in the car there, you know, as, as you pursue love, you don't realize that there are some dangers to it. Before I jump into that, let me tell you a little bit of the story. Let's go back to 1976. 1976, something momentous happened. Now, this past week, uh, a small company you may have heard of called Apple uh, just had an announcement. The announcement was, please buy our stuff. It's very expensive, but it's also great too. And there's not much different about it except for the fact that we changed the, the bottom of the jack there, and that's all we have to it, right? But in 1976, these two guys, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, created this company called Apple. Now, what you may not know, there's actually a third person who uh, helped put this uh, company together. His name is Ron Wayne. And in 1976, he was listed as a co-founder of Apple. Now, the reason you haven't heard about Ron Wayne is because Ron actually started off with Apple. And here's how the story goes. When Apple was incorporated in April 2nd, 1976, Wayne was named alongside Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak as one of the three founders with a 10% stake in the company. 10% of Apple. Now... 
If, if, if you ever thought, like, I want to build a time machine and go back and buy stocks or a lottery ticket, this is the one you want to go for, right? You want to go uh, for this one because this is going to be a lot of money. He was given a 10% stake in the company, but after a few weeks, he gave up, sold his stakes back to uh, Wozniak and Jobs for $800. Now, who wants to guess how much his 10% stake in the company? Now, don't go crazy here. It's only 10% here, right? No, no, it's one gazillion dollars. No, no, right? So... If he would have kept, now here's the thing, right? If he would have quit the company, kept his shares, which he could have because they were given to him, rather than selling it back, if he would have done that, what do you think he would have been left at today? You may have a number in mind. What do you think? Huh? 40 billion, okay? 120 billion. Anyone else? Okay, so those are all good things. If he would have kept his money, if he would have kept the shares, he would have had $35 billion. Now, if I said to him, Ron, listen, Ron, 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 you know, I don't know if the reason your name is Ron and Steve and Steve, maybe that's why you can't be part of the company. I don't know. That could be a part of it, right? But Ron, listen, let me tell you something, Ron. I know things seem tough right now. And I know, and one of the things in in, in Ron's interviews uh, throughout the years, he said a couple of different things. But one theme that kind of popped up is that Ron was kind of an older guy, like Wozniak and Jobs, these young kind of upstarts trying to put together this company and a new way of, of looking at tech. And at that time, no one had really heard about this kind of stuff. And Ron was a bit older. He was kind of the accountant and, and all that. And the reason he sold his shares is that he goes, I don't know what was going on. It was just too far beyond me. If you could build a time machine, go back to Ron and say, Ron, you had this lottery ticket. You had this, you had this golden lottery ticket, right? Think of um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You've got the golden ticket. Ron, I would give you $1,000 back in 1976 for those shares. Ron, I'd give you $2,000 for those shares back then, right? If you could build a time machine and say, Ron, what you're about to sell for $800 is going to be infinitely more uh, uh, valuable in the future if you can just hold on, right? So what does Ron do? Ron doesn't listen because no one builds a time machine, but in the future that may be the case. And Ron sells his shares for $800, right? Now, it's an odd way to start the sermon off, but here's what I want you to know, right? Uh, as I said to you before, we are, we are a culture that is obsessed with love and its derivatives. And we're going to talk about what those derivatives are over the next few weeks, right? And this morning, we're going to look at this idea of exchange. Giving something for something and then asking ourselves, how do we know the value of that exchange? Now, before we do that, right, um, it's interesting. Brian did not know what I was teaching on. Um, and so it's interesting how he has kind of led us in worship and his, uh, his comments there because it really kind of fits uh, really nicely in the, what I'm teaching on. If you ever ask yourself a question, why does God get described as love? right? Why not wisdom or strength, right? As I've studied other world religions, when they describe their gods, they have different words, right? One word that uh, predominantly uh, kind of uh, goes to the top is strong. Our God is strong. He's strong. He's going to crush the other gods, right? What about wise, right? When you get to more um, of the Eastern countries there, wisdom is actually a high value placed upon love, uh, upon, upon wisdom, sorry. But for us, the Bible says that God is love, Right? And it's interesting when you think about it because if you're going to describe God in many different ways, why not love? Now, for us today, we go, oh, yeah, well, love, of course, it's love, right? But back when they were first writing this, a couple thousand years ago, they described their God, their deity, as love. And I think about that amongst of the pantheon of gods, right? You've got Zeus, you've got, you've got uh, all these different types of gods there, and they describe it in such a way, but they say, our God is love. Now, here's what I want you to know. 
God is love because God is relational. And here's the, here's the sentence I want you to remember. Love is a language of creation. Love is the language of creation. Everything that we understand, whether we want to look at it scientifically, anthropologically, historically, at its very beginning, the reason why God created everything is because of love. And so when God talks about his creation, he talks about it in terms of love. So the reason why God is love is because love is the language of creation. Now, the interesting thing about that, though, is that when we talk about love, if I was to say to you, describe to me love, many of you would have different ways of talking about it. And if I was to say to you, hey, let's have a moment, let's have a morning of talking about people who broke up with us, or we broke up with them. Let's go back through our, uh, our, our Rolodex of past relation, failed relationships and just say, hey, let's, how, how, how's it worked out for you, right? Like, um, as a young adult pastor for a number of years, I have seen some pretty creative ways of people being broken up with, and all of which are really horrible. The worst way, just, just in case you're winding this down, guys, don't text them. Uh, that's happened. I've, I've heard that a couple times now where a guy texts us, texts the girl and says, hey, we're over, hashtag, you know, Lonelyville or whatever. I don't know, what, however you want to look at it, right? That's, that's not a great way, right? But here's the thing, though. What's interesting to me is, and this is what I have noticed, is that when we are interested in somebody or when we are in love with somebody, it transforms us, and rightfully so, it's supposed to. But sometimes, and you can, say, you can think about this, if your friend brings their boyfriend, girlfriend home or, or, or to your place and they introduce you to them, you're like, huh. Really? You know, like, that's it? You know, like, that they're the only person who, who, you know, answered your online ad or whatever. I don't know, however you're going to look at it, right? Like, like, like that's it? Really? That's, that's it? <laughs> I know it's a little too close to home. Anyways, um, that's it? That's, that, that's who you're bringing? But in, what, what's fascinating to me is that how these relationships transform us. I think that's very interesting, right? Like you'll, you'll see somebody who'll bring somebody home and all of a sudden they're into rock climbing. And like they've never climbed a rock in their entire life, but now they're dating a person who loves that. And they're like, no, I'm just passionate about rock climbing. I'm like, really, are you? Are you really passionate about rock climbing? Are you, are you like, just want to hang out with this person you've brought home, right? Our relationships transform us. And what's interesting is that's the point. But the problem is sometimes those relationships can transform us in negative ways. See, I know that as, as, as people of faith, and, and I say that people of faith, it doesn't mean a Judeo-Christian faith. I think most people are very spiritual, and we know that in our culture, right? People have a very deep sense of spirituality, and that's as it should be. We are created by a God, and so we have that. And we are willing to fight people in regards to, and I use the word fight, but I mean like have a stance, line in the sand of faith. And we say, this is what I believe, and I'm not moving from that. But then a person comes along. And they start talking to us. And they start transforming and changing us, and not necessarily in good ways. And as a pastor, as a youth pastor, young adults pastor for a couple of decades, I have seen this repeated time and time again. How the people we expose ourselves to in our lives really do change us. And there's two things you need to really uh, look at that. There's two lies that this happens, right? The first deception is that our desires, our passions, and loves are accepted by God. And those three words, uh, passion, desire, and love, we're going to kind of look at them, right? So the first lie is that whatever you think is true, whatever you think you love, that God's like, yes, I'm, I'm with you on that. That's the first lie, right? And this lie leads to the second lie. And the second lie is that now God is somehow transformed by our preferences. 
right? And I, I've said this before at our church and at UCC and other times as well, that if God resembles your preferences, it may not be God you're looking at, but maybe a mirror, right? We, 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 can't, we can't frame God in what we are comfortable with. We have to instead frame God how the Bible declares him. And now I understand something here. You can look at the Bible and go, well, I don't know about that. I get that. And one of the reasons why we teach the way we do here at UCC is because one of my, my jobs as a pastor, I believe very strongly in this, is, is to take the Bible and, and help us to understand it. Historical context, right? It's very important. What I don't know if we understand sometimes is that when we get into relationships, we get into passions and loves, it's like, um, I found myself saying this a, a lot more, and, and this is because of social media, and social media is not a great uh, indicator, but it is a barometer of sorts. I started saying things like this. I wonder if that person loves Jesus as much as they love working out. I wonder if that person loves Jesus as much as they love clothes. I wonder if this person loves Jesus as much as they love the person in their lives, and, and, and so on, right? It's like we are so passionate about something, some, some experience, some uh, um, item, status, and I, I found myself saying, I wonder if they love Jesus as much as they love this thing. And that's kind of where we want to go this morning. We kind of uh, leap into this series. And I'm going to do something I've never done before is I'm going to show you the three points of my last sermon. And the reason I want to do that is because these three points are going to direct us in the series. So here's what we're going to talk about, the very final one. Love is foundational, desire is instructional, and passion is directional. The reason I'm telling you this now is because these three themes, as I've studied and uh, thought about this, have kind of been a part of it, right? Understand something. We are created in, a, in, a, in the image of a loving God. We are created to love, and because we are created to love, the enemy will take that love, those desires, and twist them. One of the things I said at the uh, youth camp that I was speaking at, that uh, the devil is not creative. He's not creative, right? The Holy Spirit is creative. All the enemy can do is take that which is good and twist it. That's all he can do. That's what, that's what his lies are based upon, is twisted truth. And so when we talk about this idea of love, all he's trying to do is take our desires, our passions, our loves, and twist it. And that's how we're going to end off the series. And that's why I wanted to give this to you, because at the end of the series, this is where we're going to land, and we're going to, I'm going to unpack all three of those statements as we look at different characters in the Bible. So here's a question I want to answer this morning. I want to ask you, what is God worth? We know what, what Ron Wayne's shares were X amount of years later. $800 becomes $35 billion. We know that worth, right? And if you went back into the time and said, Ron, listen, just hang on to these, uh, to these shares. Okay, just hang on to these shares. Because, you know, and, and, like, there's something called the iPhone that's going to come up and the shares are going to just rock it up, right? There's going to be some rocky times, right? But just hang on to these shares. Because, Ron, right now these shares are worth $800 to you. But 40 years from now, they're going to be worth $35 billion, Ron. Just hang on to these shares, right? Here's the question I want to ask to you. Ron exchanged his shares, what he thought were invaluable at the time, and turned out to be very valuable. Well, the question I want to ask this morning as we jump into the series is, what is God worth? And to answer that question, I want to take a look at a story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 25. It's a very famous story, and uh, I, I want to unpack it and look at it maybe through fresh eyes as we take a look at, at, at two brothers. Now, I have five sisters. I don't have any brothers, so I can't tell you what it's experience to have brothers. But I do have guys in my life uh, who I would consider like brothers, uh, Dave Enns, Derek Smith. You know, these are guys that kind of rough and tumble that will uh, call me on stuff, right? And, 
Dave Enns will literally drop me on the floor, and, and, and my, that's not even a metaphor. That actually, he's actually done that. So um, I, I don't have brothers, but I know what it is to have brother, uh, brotherly love, right? I, I understand that relationship, but really sibling relationships. If you have a brother or sister, you understand this story better, right? So the stories of Jacob and Esau. And uh, the Bible gives us a description of the two characters, right? Now, these two characters are going to become huge in the Bible, but at their very beginning, we're going to take a look at their story, right? In Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 to 28, this is how the Bible describes these two guys. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, uh, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Now, look at this. This sentence bugs me, by the way. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, the story starts off with these two brothers, and these two brothers are, are absolutely opposite to each other, right? One is this rough-and-tumble hunter, kind of good-looking, and the Bible tells us he's hairy, right? So he's a man's man, right? So he's, he's a man, right? And then the other side of the spectrum is Jacob. Jacob likes to stay home with the tents, He's a good cook, you know, he's, he, he's got that part of him, right? And again, no labels here, just the fact is the Bible describes him as basically two of the opposites. But the thing I think is so interesting is the Bible says that, that Isaac, the father, who likes food, likes meat, he likes the hunter, right? And the hunter's the firstborn, he's a manly man, oh, 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 right? He's that guy with, you know, he's the guy that's going to go out and is going to wrestle something to the ground and, 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 and kill something and you're going to eat, it's going to be great, Right? Jacob is loved by the mom. <laughs> kind of typical, right? Uh, and again, as the youngest, hello, right here. Um, you know, I didn't say my mom didn't love me most, but I think she protected me from my sisters because they are vicious. And one of them is here this morning, and I can say that, right? But no, no, that's not true. They're not, everyone's like, they're not vicious. They were not, except for the fact they ter- terrorized me when I was younger with a rubber spider. And I can tell you that story at a later time. My therapist has already heard it. But anyways, okay. So, but here's the thing, right? The Bible says that Isaac loved uh, Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. But here's what you don't know or may have forgotten is that when um, Rebekah was pregnant, these two twins were wrestling in her belly. And she goes to God and says, God, what's going on here? There's like a war in my belly. I felt that after Thanksgiving dinner, but not in the same way, right? She goes to God and says, Lord, there's a war in my belly. And this is what the God says to her. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. So what you forget about the story is that God told Rebecca, the younger of the two is going to actually be, the, uh, the, the older is going to serve him. Now, can you imagine Rebecca, the mom, watching these two boys grow up? Right, like I... I Isaac's kind of a rough and tumble kind of guy, but I, I kind of get a sense of that people would like this guy, right? He's the guy that you would invite. This is the guy, you know, that you would want to have. He's the oldest. He's the, he's the strongest. He's the toughest. And, and Rebecca's looking at, 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 um, at Esau and going, how is Jacob, sensitive little Jacob, going to rule over his older brother Isaac? I mean, sorry, uh, Esau, right? And so, what you forget about the story, and, and one of the things that bugs me about it is that Rebecca loves Jacob, but Rebecca loves Jacob because God told Rebecca something that Jacob is actually going to be the ruler of the family. Now, how does this happen? Well, we take a look at it. In verse 29, it says this Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country 
famished. I love the word here the Bible uses, right? Because the word famished is, is the same way that David, when he's writing the Psalms, says, I'm, I'm so hungry for the things of God, right? It's this, it's this soul yearning kind of hunger, right? So the Bible says that Esau comes in and, and, and sometimes hunters will tell you they strike out, right? That never happens to us because, I mean, the grocery stores, it's all right there, right? So we're, we don't have that experience. But if you go out with a bow and arrow and you don't catch anything, you don't kill anything, you go hungry. It's a totally different mindset, right? So he comes home. He's been out for a couple of days, and he is famished, right? He's famished. And in verse 30, it says this. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he's also called Edom. So the Bible tells us that when, when Esau was born, he, had, he was covered in kind of red hair, right? And I have, there's a joke uh, I have there about my daughter, Tally, when she was born. She was kind of hairy as well, too, but uh, she's not here, so don't tell her I said that. Um, she, just, she doesn't listen to the sermon online, and it's okay. Um, no, but the thing is, so, so he, Edom means red. So he had like kind of reddish hair that, uh, when he was born, right? So he says, to, he says to Jacob, his younger brother, oh, by the way, the younger brother, the younger sibling, what are they supposed to do? Whatever the older ones tell them to do, right? Like, that's kind of how it works out, right? So I have five older sisters. I have five older smothers, right? Uh, you know, that's kind of what I have, right? And in our family gatherings, they tell me jump, I say how high, right? And the funny thing is, in family gatherings, I'm like, what can I bring to the table for food? You know what they tell me to bring? Can you bring, like, styrofoam plates and cups, right? That's how much they trust me. Don't cook anything. We don't want, we don't want whatever garbage you've got because we know what. And then they are. They're fantastic cooks, right? So, brother, can you bring the cutlery, the cups, and the plates? And surprisingly, I'm okay with that. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I can do that, right? Esau comes in from the open country, and he says to Jacob, Jacob, give me some of that stew, right? Now, look at his response here. In verse 31, it says this. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Now, you're saying to yourself, what's a birthright? There are three things that a birthright entail in ancient Hebraic culture. Now, remember, this story is several thousand years old, right? And you have to remember, when you read the Bible, you're reading an ancient culture that had ancient traditions. And because of that, when Jacob says, sell me your birthright, you're like, I don't know, what is that? Well, there's three things that a birthright have, right? On the first thing the birthright has is that the eldest who has the birthright, they became the ruler of their family. That when the dad passes away, they took his position as the authority in the family. The second thing about a birthright is, is that the person receives twice as much inheritance as the other, uh, the other siblings, so they will naturally be the richer of the, the, of the siblings, right? That's the thir- second thing. And the third thing is, this is very important, the birthright had a spiritual blessing to it, right? So whoever had the birthright, the, the idea was that God would bless them more because they are now the head of the family. So now imagine this, okay? Jacob says to his brother, son of your birthright. Now, in that moment is a Ron Wayne moment of Apple right? In that moment is this incredible ask, right? It's this incredible moment, and you're like, that's just the dumbest question ever. Because remember something here. Now, now let's, let's kind of uh, fast forward. In future chapters, when God introduces himself to humanity, he describes himself as the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Doesn't use Esau, does he? See, the birthright was that thing he's giving up. So when God shows up to humanity, he declares himself to humanity. I am the God of, uh, of your father Abraham, of Isaac, and of Esau. 
But he doesn't say that because you know this doesn't sound right. Because how God actually described himself is God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, yes. So the idea is that um, this idea of a birthright is this enormous, enormous thing. And, 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 and for a bowl of stew. I, I like stew. But I don't know if it's worth that much. Now look at the response here in verse 32. Esau's response. Look, I'm about to die. Esau said, what good is birthright to me? He's only been out for a couple of days. We know that you can go about 40 days without eating. It doesn't mean that you have to like it. It just means you're not going to die. But look at Esau's response. He's like, what good is a birthright to me? I'm about to die. I'm about to perish. Bit of a drama queen, right? A little, bit, a little overly dramatic here. A little bit, uh, you know, not, not seeing the future there. And look at verse 33. But Jacob said, swear to me first, because he's smart. Because promises, oaths, they meant something back then. They supposed to mean something back in today, but we have lawyers for that, right? So, but back then, oaths meant something. Jacob said to him, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate it and drank, and then he got up and left. Now, lentil stew. I thought it was meat. I thought there's some meat in there. You're not going to give up your birthright for some steak? Come on. Like, it's just, it's lentil stew. We have, in, in, in Indian culture, that's called dal. Right, that's like, I love a good bowl of dal lentil stew for you, right? But that's not worth everything. He's giving up everything for that. Now look at this next line. And this is maybe the saddest, most heart-wrenching sentence in the entire Bible. So Esau despised his birthright. So Esau despised his birthright. Because Esau, in that moment realized what he had done. And this thing that was given to him just by not, he didn't earn it. He wasn't better than everybody, even though he's a hunter. He was just firstborn. And firstborn, this is what you get. But this blessing that was supposed to be given to him, which was a financial blessing, which was a th- an authority blessing over his family, but it's also a spiritual blessing as well too. Esau despised his birthright. And I think, I read that sentence and I sat back and I just thought to myself, how, how sad of a statement is that? That after, the, after, this, after this moment is gone, Esau realized what he'd given up and what he had done. So here's a question we asked at the beginning. What is God worth? The answer is, you won't know until you're offered your bowl of stew. What is God worth? And I say that to you because I have to understand something. There's an exchange that happens every day in our lives. As a youth pastor, it always was remarkable to me. Not really remarkable. It's almost predictable that you you have these high school students in your ministry for five years. Six for the slower ones, right? Either way, you've got these youth in your ministry. And they go off to college and university and they just go nuts. And you're saying to yourself, wait, they they went on mission trips. They were in my discipleship group. They... uh, How can they become this? Because when they go off, they find their bowl of stew. And, you know, we're talking about high school students, adults. What's your bowl of stew? Is it a relationship? Is it status? Is it a job? Like, what's your bowl of stew? Because until you know what your bowl of stew is, you won't know what God is worth. Because in that moment, 
you will be given something that you think is so important, so valuable, and there is an exchange that takes place that you must sacrifice God for. And the problem is, in our culture today, is that we are exchanging that more and more. To the point now where we despise our birthright. Because we have exchanged what was meant to be something so incredibly valuable, so incredibly important to us, and we've given that up for something that is not very important. There's a process here of an exchange, and I think there's three steps that take place that Esau happened. The first exchange is this, is we allow our desires to dictate our behavior. Hear me very clearly, okay? Some of you have passions for things, but those things are not going to draw you closer to God. They're not. And, and, and I hope that's not a spoiler alert to you. I hope that's not a, wow, I thought that God was just okay with whatever I did. He's not, actually. See, if we talk about God, and, and I know people have different definitions of God, but when we talk about the, the God of the Bible, right, when you read this book here, and you start getting an idea of who this person we call God is, you realize something. This God loves us passionately. And it's not just a kind of like a small portion of love. It is lavish. But with that love comes expectations, right? I, um, I, I've done a lot of weddings this year. I feel like I have almost had a wedding every weekend. That's not true, but I've had a lot of weddings, right? And in the wedding time, weddings I've done, there's something called premarital counseling is where, you know, the couples and I sit down, we talk about what love and, uh, and, and what the relationship looks like, right? And some of those couples who have had to endure my premarital counseling are here. Now, what I try to help them understand is that every relationship has rules, right? Like no couple has ever sat down to me, I'm going to marry this person, but I want to sleep with other people as well. It's, you're, you're saying, oh, of course not. Well, why would we think God's okay with that? Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sleep around as well, as well too. And it's interesting in the Old Testament that the Bible uses the word adultery to talk about the exchange we do for God. Because he looks at our relationship as an intimate, and, and again, that idea of marriage, that covenantal relationship, that's how he describes our relationship. And that's why he says to the Israelites, listen, be careful as you experience other cultures because they're going to give you something that you're going to exchange for me. So the first part of exchanges is when our desires dictate our behavior. Right? You have to be careful with that. The second part of exchange is this, is we, can, we can't see past immediate gratification. All Esau could see was a bowl of stew. Lentil stew, even. I love lentil stew, but like throw some meat in that, right? Like that's... He can't see past that moment. I am famished. I'm so hungry. Well, here's the thing, right? When you want to exchange God for something, you can't see past the moment. You can't realize that the repercussions, the implications of what you're about to exchange are far-reaching. And so Esau, just like us today, he couldn't see past his hunger, his desire. Yes, he's hungry. I guarantee you, if you found his mom, Rebecca, she'd have something. Moms always have food, right? But instead, he can't see past. He's so focused on the stew. He's smelling it. He's there, right? And Jacob, like a Cheshire cat, got this grin on his face. Come on, buddy. You want this stew? It's really good. There's paprika in it. I don't know if there is, right? But it's like, right? He can't see past the immediate, right? The exchange happens when we can't see past the immediate gratification. And high North America called, it's all about immediate gratification, right? And the third part, and the third uh, act of it is this, is we don't value our birthright, right? We don't value our birthright. 
1976, Ron Wayne did the dumbest thing he's ever done in his entire life. He took 10% of the shares that were given to him and he sold them for $800. And to this day, he regrets it. He says that every time in, in, his, in his interviews. You know, if someone would have told me, I had no idea. But the thing is this, right? We have that same issue as well too. See, the problem with God is you can't see him. Now, I know you can say, well, I see him in the face of a baby, and that's, that's true, or I see him in the sunset, and that's somewhat true as well, too, right? But you really can't see God. So when the exchange comes, it's an abstraction. And do you know how that exchange happens most? It's subtle. It can be a relationship that we have, or it could be a choice that we make. You know what that choice is so for some people? Sleep. I'd rather sleep in on Sunday morning than go to church. And you're saying to yourself, well, are you, are you equating God and church? Let me tell you a story. Uh, I've been taking this substance. It's called uh, Jalgua, and uh, it's a weird name. But basically, it's supposed to help out your metabolism and, and make you a little, uh, has nutrients in it, right? Whenever you take a supplement like that, what you need to do is you start taking it, but then you stop to see what your body does. You want to see what your body's like after you not stop taking this product. And by the way, I don't receive any money or endorsements from this product, just to be clear, right? Um, so what I did is I started taking it for a couple months, but then I stopped taking it. And then I thought, okay, what's going to happen to my body? And my body was not happy with me. So then I go, oh, oh okay, I'm, I'm going to start taking it again. And, and I do. It's, it's, it's nothing medical. All that. It's just, it, just, it helps your metabolism, things like that, right? Great. Here's what I want to say to you. I don't say that church is God. But I do say that I've yet to see a Christ follower who doesn't attend church regularly grow in their faith. It's like, take that element away, and then what happens? What happens is we tend to become very spiritually lazy. And so I don't know if church is that important, but I do know this, that without that element in our, in our lives, I don't see people growing in their faith, serving in a community, bearing one of those birth. Like, I don't see it happening. So... We exchange God for different things, and it could be small things, or it could be large things, but we see it happen all the time. And that's really how our desires affect us. Romans chapter 1 is this incredible chapter, and some people are very uncomfortable with it and, and all that stuff, but one of the things that we miss, what Paul's trying to say, and it's towards the middle of the chapter, Paul says this, um, although they claim to, oh, did I, did I get right past it there? Okay, let me go back here, and let me see if I got it here for you. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for blank. What are you, what's God worth to you? You won't know until that bowl of stew sends you a message or texts you. You won't know until that bowl of stew offers you that promotion, which means you have to work extra hours. You won't know what that bowl of stew is until something comfortable in your life is going to happen. Then you will know the bowl of stew. And then you will know at that moment what you exchange God for. And the book of Romans, uh, chapter 1, people have really not liked it because of the list it says of what sin is. And I get that. But what Paul is trying to say, and he prefaces everything by saying this, what are you going to exchange God for? And Paul has this enormous list of idolatry and things like that, and, I, and that's fine. My question to you this morning is, what have you exchanged God for? And the easy answer, of course, is a boy or a girl. Man or woman. Right? That's the easy answer, of course. It's the easy answer. But it's more subtle than that. Let me close with the last scripture here. 
in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is trying to teach. Remember, Jesus, he is way above and beyond uh, what anybody else said, any rabbi up to this point in time. He's teaching them stuff that they've never heard before. But he's also teaching them a level of commitment they've never had to think about before. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23 to 25, it says this. Then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world exchange and yet lose or forfeit their very self? In some translations, it says soul. That's it right there. What do you love so much that you've exchanged God for? What is it that you've said, Lord, I'm going to give this, and it can be piece by piece. It may not be the birthright moment, but it can be a path that we walk without realizing it. Our loves, our passions, our desires are given to us by God. We are created by God for them. But the enemy takes those things and he twists it in such a way that he uses, he uses it as a lever to move us from God. Uh, this sermon I was going to call today is the, the, uh, the, uh, the lever of loneliness. Because uh, one of the things that Kitchener Wally we are very aware of is that we are inundated now by university students. And one thing I find interesting about university students are is that every one of them, the 16, 20,000 that have arrived first years, that arrived in our, in, in our city, they're all lonely. They've come from their homes. They've come from their, their, their communities. And they're now during Frosh Week, which is what we're in right now. And they have this exchange moment, right? Relationships of, of behavior, of, of that, right? That exchange moment, right? And what does Jesus say? If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, give everything up. And you're like, Pokemon Go? Did I have to give that up, right? No, maybe, I don't know. Um, What is God asking you to give up? And here's what I want to close. This is my challenge to you. If we look at our lives and we ask ourselves a question, what is God worth? The, the, The correct answer is God's worth everything. Is he? And if we are honest with ourselves, we will see maybe a path of stews behind us, of decisions that we've made to go off in directions that we shouldn't have, and we have not drawn closer to God. Let's bow our heads, let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I just we do this every time just to give people an opportunity to think. I won't ask anybody to do anything, but I do want you to think. This is an important moment because in my spirit, I have felt this and I've seen this, that we have given up our spiritual birthright willingly, easily, and without any fight whatsoever. The enemy comes to us with lies and with untruths and we are able to fight. But when he comes with love, passions and desires, we just give in. And I believe right now that there's some people in this room that have, have realized that their bowl of stew is this. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, then you have to give everything up. And the, of course, we're, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's many things. But just like Ron Wayne, 
And just like Esau, the value of what God's asking you to do is far greater than you can imagine. And he says in Luke 9, what if I told you that you have to give up the entire world so that you can have an eternity with me? We live on this planet 70, 80, 90, 100 years. And we think these things are so important. How big our house is, the car we're driving, our occupation, our relationships. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of themselves. But when we exchange them for God, we are exchanging an eternity with our creator for something immediate right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are merciful. I thank you that you are compassionate. And Lord, I thank you that when we exchange you for something, you are always there calling us back into a relationship that is intimate and authentic. Lord, I thank you that you don't expect us to be perfect. I thank you that you are not calling us to something that's beyond our capability. I thank you, God, that you've given us your Holy Spirit, which creates within us this this desire to become more like you. Lord, I pray for each person here. And Lord, for those who have given up your immortal glory for something temporary, I pray, God, that you would correct them in that right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fix that and you would call us back. Lord, forgive us if we have fear of what we have to give up. Forgive us if we have uh, discouragement, Lord. I pray, God, that you would help us to see past the temporary to what is eternal. Lord, I pray that this is something that we do daily, even as your scripture says, take up our cross daily. Every morning we wake up and the bulls of stew are waiting. And I pray, God, that we would resist them for the greater glory of who and what you are, Lord. I thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.